Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Hello there, Father Robert Sirico is President Emeritus of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. His many writings include Defending the Free Market, The Moral Case for a Free Economy. His new book is The Economics of the Parables, our topic today. Welcome, Father Sirico. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. I love the parables. Everyone loves the parables. Who doesn't love the parables, right? Uh, you find a few people every now and then. You'd be surprised. <laughs> oh, come on. Come on. <laughs> well, I mean, like, why did this guy not show up in a fancy garment to a wedding feast and then get thrown out and beaten up? I mean, that, that's the kind of question you very often get asked. Uh, I don't use that parable in, in this book, but uh, I've been asked that when, And it's not an easy parable to preach on when you're preaching on it. Uh, they, they are uh, uh, deceptively simple, aren't they? They are. You, you have put your finger right on it. Very deceptively simple. Uh, first question, not about the parables, but let me ask, why do you take King James as your translation in this book? You raised the issue at the beginning. I do. Well, I mean, I have loved the King James. I was a literature major in uh, my undergraduate years, so I've, I've always loved Shakespearean Elizabethan English. Uh, I also heard the cadence of the King James when I was a teenager, and I would go to church with my friends, particularly uh, black churches, and hear preachers preaching this eloquent, fiery uh, kind of homilies. I, I thought uh, linguistically uh, and rhetorically that the King James mode of speech it has the drama and the, uh, let's say, power, rhetorical power behind it to match the parables. So I thought of it as poetry, and it's amazing how many people um, in in the course of, you know, publicizing the book will go to read a passage and kind of stumble on it because we, we aren't used to that kind of language. It's its like the difficulty of reading and hearing Shakespeare. Once you get into it, you love it. But until you get into it, it's a little difficult for some people. No, I mean, I'm, I'm an English guy. And I mean, I think this, the King James is, is one of the greatest works of English literature. Exactly. Apart from everything else, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's the greatest work ever written by committee. Huh? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yes. So, um, uh, I think, I think, I mean, I was glad to see King, King James. Oh, thank you. Thank I'm you. I'm not a Protestant, but, but, uh, you know, we, we, when, when I do a little theology with my son, I homeschool him a little theology. I read, I read the Psalms with him, for instance, so, or, oh, yeah. I, and I read out of King James. Uh, sure. maybe, maybe that's wrong, but, 
Well, okay. I mean, the, 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 the 23rd Psalm, how can you enjoy it in any other translation in English? Or uh, the 90th Psalm as well. Or I love the, uh, the, um, the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. I, I, I heard those very early on. I mean, I'm, I'm a cradle Catholic, even though I've been around the, the uh, theological block. Um, but those still speak to me very, um, very dearly. Yeah. What is the etymology of the word parable? So uh, from Latin and, and then derived then even more fully from Greek, it's to put side by side. It's to make a comparison. And I, I think in the case of Jesus' parables, it's, it's often good to remember, too, these are not fables. These are not fantastical stories that, you know, uh, require our imagination. These are common things from, and and their commonality, I think, is part of what gives them their enduring quality, that anyone, even after 2,000 years, um, hearing and seeing these examples can relate to them. I mean, you and I may never have um, gone to buy a field and found a Pearl of Great Price buried in the... I'm sorry, I'm confusing the two. There's the hidden treasure and the Pearl of Great Price. Um, but nonetheless, we can relate to that because we've all found good buys in a junk shop sometimes or something like that. So I think that uh, the parables begin with the here and now in the most common and most um, familiar uh, of environments, which is scarcity which is the allocation of resources, conserving resources. And then they point us higher. They bring us from there. And in that say, it's, 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 in that way, it's kind of like the um, incarnation itself, the enfleshment of God in, in the human circumstance. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jesus says he speaks in parables, quote, because they seeing see not and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. Well, what does he mean here? Some of the commentators say uh, that this was Jesus' way of kind of speaking uh, in the volatile Roman political context in Jerusalem and drawing hearers who would hear uh, the spiritual depth of his message about the kingdom of God. So I think that probably has something to do with it. It may also... Might you might I, I suppose you might draw a parallel to where he speaks about the um the sower with the seed and the seed falls in different places and, and it has to have a suitable environment uh in order for the seed to to grow. And I think that may very well be also what Jesus was saying there. By the way, I should say here parenthetically that the gospel the parables are also very or many of them anyway, are are notoriously uh, ambiguous. They leave you hanging at the end. You, you really don't know the, the parable of the, um, the prodigal son, as it's called. Uh, you don't know what happens to that older son at the end. It could go either way. And, and I think because of that, it excites our imagination and can really be a very apt tool for our meditation because what's what's really good in meditation is to envision things, not just to exegete the passage that's there, but to envision how it might have gone, how the story might have gone differently, or mm. where do I fit into this 
this group of people. And I think we can derive a lot of spiritual benefit from that. Uh, you focus on economics, the economics of the parables. What, is that, what does that term mean in your discussion? Yes, well, what it doesn't mean <laughs> is uh, mathematics, abstractions, formulas. Uh, what it doesn't mean is political policies and political debates. Uh, what it does mean is, in the world of Jesus, in the in the ancient world, uh, they didn't understand economics as we speak of it today. Uh, you could say economizing. It was an Aristotle, it's household uh, management. Um, but it took the 16th century and beyond to begin to systematize any kind of um, understanding of scientific economics, if you will. Uh, so it doesn't mean that. It means the human circumstance of living in this context of scarcity. You know, in the book of Genesis, God places the human family in a garden. This is very interesting. We don't often think about it. We just kind of take it and go from there. But a garden is different than a jungle. A garden involves uh, organization. It involves planning. It involves harvesting. It involves um, creating the right circumstances for growth. It re requires work. And that context is the perennial human context. Um, and so when I say economics, um, I'm trying to derive Jesus grappling with or using uh, those human realities to teach us something that transcends those human realities and limitations. You mean in paradise, we, we got to do any work? Huh. Well, if by, uh, but yes, of course. I mean, what is the liturgy, right? <laughs> the liturgy is the work of God. Um, in fact, the breviary is still, is called the work, the work of God. So um, yes, we will do work in that sense, but we, uh, in heaven, unlike, um, unlike um, on earth, we we will have access to things that we won't have to buy because there won't be scarcity. Hmm. Uh, that's that's the instructive point of it. But if by paradise you meant the Garden of Eden, yes, uh, absolutely you have to work because God said, God worked. <laughs> and God gave that command to the human family to work. What happens after the fall is that that work becomes toil. Right. And where, where there's exploitation and, and the rest of it, which is uh, part of what the moral lessons of the parables and the scriptures more generally are about. You begin with the parable of the hidden treasure. Uh, what is that, that brief uh, story and, and, and the lesson? And, uh, and what, the, why do you start with that one? Well, uh, I, I thought it's a beautiful one. It's a short one. It gets us into it and has a lot, lot in it. And it, just as uh, I made the mistake right at the beginning, you know, of confusing the hidden treasure with the pearl of great price, they're two very similar stories. Uh, although the pearl of great price is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's the shortest of the um, the parables. What is it? One sentence, something mm -hmm. like that. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, what I like about the hidden treasure is that it communicates to us something about valuation. Uh, a lot of people when speaking about the market, uh, go in, in different directions. Some people think that the, the way in which we 
understand the value of things in the market is the same way we understand virtue and morality. And and that's not right. Uh, the market value of a thing is subjective. And it, what we see in this and, and in others of the parables uh, is the way in which the, the man who finds uh, the treasure evaluates it and is willing to give everything for it in exchange for it. Another part of it in this reading is that there's speculation going on here. And speculation is very often a bad word in the way it is described. But it, really, the root of that is simply looking uh, like a spectator. And he's examining uh, what the circumstances are. There's also a moral challenge here that, that people could raise uh, about, well, wouldn't this man have been um, a better person had he told the, uh, the owner of the field that there was something of great value in the field? And I kind of handle that because from an economic point of view, and in fact, in the scholastics, it says that you don't have that moral obligation. You might have that as an obligation of etiquette or an expectation of culture, but it's not a matter of morals or of justice because the person who is doing the selling uh, has to know what he's selling. That's part of his responsibility. I mean, if if everybody knew everything and, and had all the same opinions, there would be no buying and selling, right? We, we exchange things precisely because we value things differently. And so I thought that there was a lot packed in that um, that one little parable, uh, and and then it's I don't know what I want to call it. It's twin, but it's kin anyway. The pearl of great price is interesting to me. Right, that was my next my next question. Well, you know, think about this. Jesus holding this example up, the pearl of great price for the kingdom of God. Again, I, I go back and want to emphasize over and over again that Jesus isn't teaching economics in these parables. There's an economic backdrop. There's an economic presupposition, so to speak. But he's not there telling us, uh, so the law of supply and demand is the 11th commandment. You know, That's not what's going on in this. But that Jesus uses a pearl as the um, metaphor for the kingdom of God I think says something, uh, well, I mean, just think about it. A, a pearl is a luxury item. It, it has no real utility other than its aesthetic value. Um, and pearls, especially in the ancient world, couldn't be made. You know, today we can make uh, artificial pearls or manufactured pearls. These just came from nature, and you had to search them out. And you also had to have a certain knowledge of the quality in order for this man to do what he does, which is to surrender everything. Personally, I find this, um, I've always found this uh, line in the gospel here that says that he he sold all that he had because he had found this. He, with great joy, he, he buys this. And uh, that's always touched me very deeply um, in terms of my relationship with with Christ, am I willing to to surrender? It's the it's the Christian challenge. We have to relinquish everything, uh, so so much so that even things that are naturally and 
legitimately loved come in comparison to seem to be hate when it comes to the kingdom of God. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Uh, let me step out for a moment, say something about the book. You include in here some lovely images uh, that exemplify things. I mean, things like prints derived from, from John Everett to Millet. Yes. Uh, works. Uh, was that your decision to put those in? Did you chose those? Uh, yes, I did. Um, I When I suggested it to the publisher, to Regnery, they said yes, but it can't be uh, color because of the cost uh, in producing it. And I remembered, you know, so many of these beautiful um, woodworks, uh, most of them are prints, um, that I thought, well, let's look and, and get them together. Now, they're not all one artist. They're, they're a variety of different artists. And I think that enhances it, too. But they, they are really uh, uh, quite lovely and evocative, I think. They are. They are. I, I think. Well, look, this is uh, we, we've got the parable, a little story. Let's give it a little visual image of, of the right. same thing. Uh, right. to, to, it's all about making the message clear. Yes. Uh, so. Uh, all right. Next. A longer parable, that of the sower. What do we have here? What is the what is the lesson of your term receptivity that we take? Yes, uh, I was alluding to that a few moments ago. Uh, you know, when I've preached on this parable, uh, you, we we think of this uh, uh, broadcast sowing. They call it broadcast because you just throw it, you throw the seed, and it lands in a variety of different environments. And we very often think of that as the literal environment. So some is good, rich soil, it can grow. Others is sh shallow, it grows for a little bit and dies. Others is wasted completely. And we think of that as the, the terrain, the physical terrain of the world, of preaching of the gospel, because Jesus says this is really the, the, the lesson of the gospel, the meaning of the gospel, of the parable. Um, but I think it also speaks to various places in our own hearts and at various points in our own lives when we are more receptive to one or another part of the gospel hmm. uh, than at other points in our lives or in our in our own hearts. Um, of course, the economic backdrop is is knowing your your market, if you will, <laughs> you know, uh, understanding that things have to be appropriate to the receptor. That, that how we go. And, and this is commerce, again, gives us a great idea uh, and a great image of how that that can play itself out. Next, we have the even longer parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Uh, and this one's always bothered me. It's just not fair. It just right. doesn't right, right here. How <laughs> how am I getting that wrong? Uh, there, there are two or three of these parables that 
that always come up, especially in when you're addressing economic questions. Um, and of course, just to remind everybody what what it is is the man owns a field. He has to get the harvest in. Uh, he sees immediately early on that he doesn't have enough workers to bring in the harvest. And isn't this just ripped from the pages of the newspapers today? <laughs> you know this this uh, poverty of of workers, and mm-hmm. that's what he's confronted with. And he sees the dilemma immediately. And so he goes at different times of the day and hires these other people. And at the beginning, he he sets the standard. I'm going to pay you the usual daily wage. So what this is saying is this is the expectation for a whole day's work. You get this amount of money. And everyone at the various stages of engagement, of hiring, are content with the deal. The actual offer becomes vaguer later in the uh, more vague later in the um, parable because the later workers he just says I'll, I'll i'll pay you what is fair and so they all go to work and then the end of the day we have this reversal of fortune by the way the reversal of fortune occurs in a number of these uh, parables like the uh, rich man and lazarus that's a real reversal of fortune um and then of course those who work last get paid first they get the usual daily wage, and those who worked first anticipate they will get more because they worked more. Um, It's instructive here to, first of all, understand that no injustice has been done to anyone. Right. The, The agreement, justice, treatment in accord with dessert, according to Aristotle, right? No injustice has been done. The other thing is it teaches us, again, about the subjective value of the market, that, that economic evaluation is not objective evaluation, and that this man's, this the owner's, um, if you want to blame him for anything, you have to blame him for generosity, <laughs> uh, not for, for cheating anybody out of anything. Right. And he quite explicitly says at the end, are you, uh, uh, how does the King James Bible put it now? I've even forgotten it. So it's a very unusual phrasing for the, the modern ear. But, you know, is your eye evil because I am good? Because I've been generous. Has something turned around in you? It's a matter of the perspective on the part of the individual workers. And I just thought that what they're not seeing is the most obvious thing, and it's the generosity of this benefactor. Yeah. And what? Well, what? I, you, you know, I, I, I'll read that to my son, and I'll say, now, now, listen. The guys who worked all day for that wage, they should feel better. I put in a full day's work. I did. I did a real job. I didn't come in in the last hour and say, "Hey, I get a good deal." Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if that I don't know if that that flies or not, but well, I think they would have felt that way had these other guys not come. <laughs> you know, they would have said, "Okay, I did my day's labor," and I, you know, as we all do at the end of a day when we've done a good job, we feel satisfied with that. But then these other guys come, and then somebody's generous toward them, and and it's the whole lesson on envy. You know right. how envy in in an economy destroys people in society in general destroys people and we make ourselves miserable it does because of our envy yeah you you speak in in that one of the the conclusion really what we take from this is ultimately quote you put it god's gratuity right 
What do you mean by that? Well, uh, let me give you another example of it. The good thief on the cross. Uh, You know, here here is uh, this man who... Last minute, last second. Last second. And it's God's gratuity. And I see in church, sometimes you, you experience people who have been very faithful parishioners for many, many years. They've sat in the same pews all of those years. And some new people come in. Maybe they don't look quite like them or dress like them or speak like them or whatever it happens to be. And they're resentful somehow. Um, and, you know, what does that say about our own formation? Um, it's a it's a sad it's a sad reality. So, the you know, the, the good thief who steals heaven is a model for God's gratuity. Yeah. Uh, another one that is a little bit a little bit tough. For, for, for me, I guess in the past is the parable of the talents. Uh, a bit too That's hard. That's the other one that comes up all the time. <laughs> the servant who does nothing with the money, bam. Yeah, he uh, really gets hit heavy. <laughs> he, he, he gets it. What, what do we make of this? Well, first of all, what's interesting from a technical point of view is I, I didn't, I guess I didn't really realize this, that the word talent uh is an economic unit in the ancient world, and we've just appropriated that uh, for, for modern usage to mean a gift, that a, an ability that somebody has. Hmm. Um, this gospel starts off, there's several qualifications that are kind of embedded very subtly at the outset. And the first is that he says that he gives to each according to his ability. So it's not that each of them uh, have differing, uh, differing uh, successes because they're more talented or better off, you know, or better contacts. They each have the ability to do something with this. Uh, the second thing is that at the end, it's not that the third one, the one who has the one talent and who reproduces it, he hasn't lost anything. He's just given him back other than, you know, but the master says, yeah, but, but I could have had interest on that. So you really do lose it. You know, if you're not using it, you're losing it in in effect. But I think in terms of the moral insight here, and, and it has an economic dimension as well, it all hangs on the perception of the servant. So you, you have the first two who double their income and then the final one, who hides the money, and the first thing he says to the master is, I was afraid, which mm. contrasts with the um, the characteristic that is needed in the entrepreneur, because the entrepreneur mm. has to be a risk taker at some, at some level. Uh, so that's the first thing. But then I think more profoundly is the perception on the part of this uh, man of who the master was. He says, I perceive that you are a hard man. Now here he he entrusts these three servants with his wealth and gives them the opportunity to be productive. And he's being called a hard man. And Mm -hmm. why is he a hard man? And this, I think, is the assumption really of central planners. It certainly was the assumption of Marx and Engels. Uh, that is that every act of profit-making in a market economy 
is exploitative by its nature. And he says to the master, you reap where you have not sown and you gather where you have not scattered. You, you're exploiting us. This, this is the man who's invested his money, who's given freely, who's risked his own money with these men, made them collaborators with him. And he's being accused of the very opposite. So it shows a deep misperception on the part of the servant toward the master. And I think that's why he gets walloped. And of course, remember, it's a story. So it's, it's to teach us this lesson of trust in God and the willingness to make a, a risk. By the way, this is another one of these things. I, I think it would be interesting to meditate on this gospel and imagine that the master came home and found that none of them made any money because of some natural disaster or some market, you know, failure. Mm -hmm. It's instructive to remember that not every failure in a market is a moral failure. Hmm. Sometimes people fail in markets for reasons that have nothing to do with their goodness, their personal virtue. No. Let me jump to the Good Samaritan. I want to touch on that one uh, as as we wrap it up. To you, it raises uh, the issue that we all face, precisely the limits of our resources, right? Yeah, it does, but it goes beyond that. I mean, obviously, we have our resources that are that are limited, but um, it's very often used, the, the, the Good Samaritan is very often used as the model for justifying the welfare state to say that in Jesus giving this example, we should construct a, um, an apparatus uh, to take care of the poor, which I'm not against. I'm not even against the government providing that at a certain level. What I want to challenge is the notion that, first of all, the government should be the first means hmm. of providing for people's needs, and more importantly, uh, to question the notion that simply by paying our taxes and having them go to support uh, the poor, that we've somehow fulfilled our moral responsibility. It seems to me that everything about this story is personal engagement. The Samaritan goes and sees the man, pays attention to the man, unlike the two religious leaders who walk by him. He takes his own medicinal supplies that he has, oil and and wine, and begins to disinfect the wound. Then he hoists the man, that that very word, hoists the man up onto his beast. It's his own animal that he puts him on and brings him back to the inn. And there gives the innkeeper the money to sustain him until he can come back and then obligates himself in case the innkeeper has to uh, supply something else that he hadn't anticipated. He obligates himself to that. Everything about that story is personal. And it seems to me that if we're going to talk about the um, care of the poor, it, it involves this noticing. Pope Francis says that in, um, I think it was uh, Fratelli Tutti or one of the encyclicals, where he speaks about one of the great sins today with regard to the poor is not that we do bad things to the poor, but we don't notice them. We just ignore them. They're not, and we see that also, by the way, in the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, so it seems to me that everything about this 
is the necessity, the moral necessity of personal engagement with the poor, because that's where we encounter Christ. The book is The Economics of the Parables. Father Robert Sirocco, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.